It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. The Republican National Convention kicks off on Monday with the first night schedule featuring prominent Republicans like Representatives Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, former ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Meanwhile, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy testifying before the House Oversight Committee to address the U.S. Postal Service operations during the pandemic and the upcoming election. Our socially distant panel is anxiously awaiting to discuss, but first, Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey has been following Joe Biden on the campaign trail. Gives us an update. Joe Biden wants more than $6 trillion in new federal spending, and that money has to come from somewhere. This is what he told ABC News on Sunday. I will raise taxes for anybody making over $400,000. Let me tell you why I'm going to do it. It's about time they start paying a fair share of the economic responsibility we have. The very wealthy should pay a fair share. Corporations should pay a fair share. The fact is there are corporations making close to a trillion dollars to pay no tax at all. I'm not punishing anybody. This is about everybody paying their fair share. Barack Obama sees shades of an even more progressive lawmaker telling The New Yorker, quote, if you look at Joe Biden's goals and Bernie Sanders' goals, they're not that different from a 40,000-foot level. They both want to make sure everybody has health care. They both want to make sure everybody can get a job that pays a living wage. They want to make sure every child gets a good education. But nearly a third of DNC convention delegates weren't satisfied with the Biden platform. More than 1,000 voted against it. More than 3,500 voted for it. Two dozen former elected Republicans backed Biden this week, including former Senator Jeff Flake, who recorded this clip for the campaign. But I've been asked many times over the past four years if I, as a conservative, could vote for a Democrat for president. Sure has been my ready answer if he or she were a Joe Biden kind of Democrat. The Biden campaign shared how he celebrated his convention address Thursday, Briar's ice cream with a note from his grandkids that said, Pop, tonight you eat from the box. His convention was slimmed down because of COVID-19 considerations, the same ones that have Biden pushing for a mask mandate. The 77-year-old also told ABC if he wins, he's ready to serve till he's 86. Biden hasn't campaigned out of the House much since March and apparently doesn't plan to. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, Peter Ducey, Fox News. Peter, thanks. The next four days will be the Republicans' turn to make their case for President Trump's re-election. President Trump's campaign has suggested that they intend to contrast their convention with last week's DNC. The week will be filled with prominent speakers. President Trump is expected to be featured in some capacity every night and maybe even every day. Amid the week of the RNC, two tropical storms threatening to cause major damage to several states And protests have formed overnight in Wisconsin in response to circulating footage of a police shooting of an unarmed black man. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers identified the man as Jacob Blake and condemned the shooting in a statement saying, we stand against excessive use of force. We'll start with our panel, national editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, and Fox News politics editor, Chris Steinwald. Okay, Amy, uh, the president is going to feature prominently 
in every day, every night. We've already seen Monday a kind of stream of consciousness uh, type speech accepting the nomination once the delegates were there. And clearly he's missed his Trump rallies because uh, that seemed to really fit that, uh, that MO. That's right. I mean, we're in a really unique point here, Brent. We've never had a president, at least in modern times, come into his own convention as far behind in the polling, both nationally and in the battleground states, as this president finds himself. And so his job this week is really to try to figure out a way to make Joe Biden an unacceptable choice for voters. Yes, he would like to make the case for for four more years of Donald Trump, but right now uh, the voters that he has who support that there aren't as many of them as who say what I'm really voting for right now is somebody who's not Donald Trump. And so his challenge is to tell voters that the risk of voting for Joe Biden is much greater than the risk of, you know, an additional four years of this administration. Chris Darwell. Um, I, I think that's entirely correct. Um, I, I, I think the, the problem that you have with incumbents is that they have already bent the universe to their will, right? The Republican Party now, we saw it with the, their platform. They didn't even do a platform. They just said the Republican platform for 2020 is whatever Trump says. And it's kind of weird, but it is just sort of a more intense version of what traditionally happens second term. You know, everything, everything is yours. Unfortunately for Trump, that means that there is not going to be any pushback on people who say there needs to be less of you and more of others. Right. And that's what Republicans really need right now. They really need right now to reach out to those people who maybe don't like Trump personally or maybe have problems with the tweeting or the whatever, who have serious issues with him personally, but don't want to elect a Democrat and do not want to have a Democrat president. That's where you've got to have voices. And Nikki Haley's an important one, but they've got to play up these other voices from the traditional Republican Party that can reach out to these voters and say, look, uh, whatever you think about Trump, stick with the GOP brand because it's prosperity, uh, it's conservative judges, it's all that stuff. Yeah, Tom, I, I, I hear the pushback about no platform. Um, the chair, Ronald McDaniel, saying they didn't do a platform committee, there weren't the delegates in Charlotte, it was short term, blah, 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 blah. But they have this agenda where they have 49 items, many of which most Republicans are pretty for. I mean, school choice, more judges, uh, defend the police, don't defund them, um, a whole list of things, jobs, 10 million in 10 months. So that's, that's his platform. And the other thing is, is that, you know, the Democrats, we just found out, a thousand delegates, a thousand sixty nine voted against the Democratic platform, not because it was too radical, because it is the most left platform ever for a Democratic nominee, but because it wasn't radical enough. Right. It was the Bernie Sanders delegates who voted <clears throat> against it. Yeah, and, and we saw the same thing. I mean, to Amy's point, negative partisanship is really driving this election. I mean, Donald Trump is going to do his best to make Joe Biden continue to push the case that Joe Biden sort of mentally incapacitated this sort of vessel for the radical left and try and scare suburbanites into saying, you know, that making that choice that, hey, if you vote for Biden, you're going to get all this radical stuff. Um, and we just saw the Democrats who also did not really talk much about policy. It was heavy on anti-Trump saying, look, this is an existential threat to, to our democracy Four more years of this guy. And a lot of character testimonials about Biden. He's a, 
you know, he's a lifelong public servant. He's a man of faith. He rides Amtrak. He likes ice cream. He's a good grandpa. Um, all of those things, trying to portray him as this, as this acceptable, safe alternative, but very little on, very little on policy. And so we're going to have sort of a, a policy-free election, I think. Um, you know, Donald Trump is certainly going to play up what he's accomplished, whatever promise he's kept from his first four years. And he does have to offer, I think, something uh, for folks, a vision looking forward. I think the Democrats missed an opportunity to do that. And he's obviously going to play up the contrast on the law and order piece, which Democrats whiffed on, didn't even mention once. And, and I think that presents uh, the opportunity for Republicans to do a contrast, but they have to do it in a way that isn't really dark and foreboding. They have to have uh, sort of an optimistic, uh, they don't want to be so dark uh, that, it, that it turns voters off. You know, Annie, the Never Trump thing is real. Uh, 27 Republican lawmakers endorsing Biden, uh, including former Senator Jeff Flake. There's not surprising names in that list, uh, but it's, it's real. It's there. How much does like 203 judges make a difference in this election pitch for the Trump team? You know, two right. Supreme Court justices, 146 district court judges, 53 appellate court judges. Does that pitch still sell? So what's really interesting is I went back and, and I was looking through the most recent Pew poll and then comparing it to something they had called their validated voter survey, which is essentially talking to people who voted in 2016 and they validated that those people actually voted. So you get it. It's a um, post-election survey in 2016 of real voters. And what you find when you compare where the president is today to where he was in 2016, he's he actually hasn't moved much with core demographic groups, including the kind of group that you're talking about, these sort of white college-educated voters or suburbanites, sort of the shorthand for them. He's not uh, doing any worse with those voters, but Joe Biden's doing better with them than Hillary Clinton did. In other words, there were a bunch of people, and I think this is the challenge if you're the president right now and trying to expand your base or trying to bring in people who may not love the idea of voting for a Democrat. Maybe they were torn as well in 2016. They didn't like Hillary. They didn't like Trump. They voted third party. When you look at where those third party voters people who voted for Johnson or Stein in 2016, where they're going. Right now, they're breaking disproportionately for Joe Biden. And I think a lot of that, to, to Tom's point, is not really about policy. It is really about style. There's a reason that Joe Biden spent almost all of his time talking about empathy and leaning into the soul of the nation. It is basically his message is, everything that Trump is, I am the opposite. Right? Not necessarily every policy position, but certainly every one of his his personal attributes. And again, I think he can do that because, one, how polarizing the president's been and not expanding his base. But two, we're in a time of incredible tumult where the president isn't seen as handling any of those major crises particularly well, whether it's coronavirus or race relations. Um, and so it makes it easier then to say, look, it can't be much, right? Like four more years of this? Really? That's what you want? No, 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 no. You, do, you, don't, you may not know what you're going to 100% get with Biden based on the convention in terms of what their t 
top three policy positions are going to be, but you do know that it's going to look different than these last four years. And basically the most different it will be is, is on uh, the question of stability, getting rid of the drama and the chaos. Yeah. I get the pitch for normal Chris Starwalt, but um, you know, Matthew Continetti called the DNC convention, the sleight of hand convention because it was, Look over here at the shiny thing. He is a great guy. He's very decent. But what are the policies? What exactly is he doing? Well, I know, I, I know Matt understands this, but uh, uh, political conventions are not uh, known for their bold truth-telling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, this is, we in the, we in the media have, a, over the, since 1952, come to a deal uh, with our two once great political parties, which is to say you each get a week every four years, a summer of every four years, you get a week to make your pitch and we'll pay attention and we'll listen and we'll take seriously the things that you're talking about. Now, look, it is undeniable. But my point is that there wasn't a pitch. There really wasn't a when, pitch other than what Amy talks about, which is normal, and, no chaos, and I'm going to bring people together. And that Bringing people it, together under those policy concerns is going to be pretty tough. Joe Biden is a centrist in the sense that he has made a career out of trying to compromise. And the way that Joe Biden had operated in his long, 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 long time in the Senate and what he did in the Obama administration and everything else is, let's try to make a deal. And I don't know whether there's room for that in Washington. I don't know whether there's any interest in that in Washington. Uh, I, I suspect probably not uh, in, in real ways. But we would remember that given the fact that Donald Trump is, as Amy pointed out, the most unpopular incumbent since George H.W. Bush in 1992, and he has all of these problems with his attributes, um, there are a lot of people who are going to vote for Donald Trump who don't like him. Uh, he needs more people who <laughs> don't like him to vote for him. And the last thing on this front, though, which I think is, is interesting, the Trump campaign believes that it can change the electorate. There's a really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal, and we've heard and seen it elsewhere. The effort to bring in more um, low propensity white working class voters to compensate for the loss of these traditional Republicans, these, these flakeite uh, traditional uh, country club conservatives from the suburbs. Uh, it is a very open question whether or not the Trump campaign can remake the electorate in that way, and certainly whether they can do so without further alienating the suburbs. So I think you're looking at a Republican Party that's sort of betwixt and between. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some numbers out of Pennsylvania that there, that there are increased numbers in the Trump category, but we'll see how that pans out. The other thing, Tom, is, is the COVID thing. And you had Joe Biden say, there is no miracle cure, or there won't be a miracle cure, essentially. That's really not what Americans want to hear. They'd love to see some miracle that, that a vaccine comes up before the end of the year or, before, or it's very successful before Election Day uh, or some therapeutic prevents people from dying or something. And then he says, Joe Biden, when asked, would you shut down the government? I mean, we shut down the economy. And he says, yes, I would follow the science. Not sure small business wants to hear that either. You know, is there a risk on the flip side of COVID? when it comes to the Democrats and where they're positioning. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it, it was very clear that uh, in, in all of the addresses and including Joe Biden's acceptance speech, where he really laid into the president about his handling of COVID. They know that that's Trump's 
biggest weak point. And even the Trump campaign will say that 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 is one of their weakest points. And to the extent that they can they can show that the numbers are trending in the right direction, you know, infection rates are down, deaths are down, caseloads, et cetera, et cetera, um, in the coming 70 plus days, they think that obviously increases their chances that, that the president can, can sort of, you know, get back in the game. So there's no question. But to your point, I, I do think there is, uh, Biden opened himself up to uh, real criticism by saying, you know, I'm just going to follow the science. I'm going to follow science wherever it leads, including uh, you know, shutting down the economy again. I mean, there are real risks. There are also, you know, the school issue now is is at the top of the minds of all Americans, and certainly those Americans with children who are now looking at the prospect of, uh, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to manage things. And and so I think that that's another opportunity for Republicans and for Trump to really sort of draw those contrasts and say, look, we need to get the kids back to school. We need to get back to our normal lives. We, you know, once upon a time the shutdowns were only so that we could, you know, not overwhelm our hospital system so that we could bend the curve, flatten the curve. If we all remember that um, at some point along the way, it morphed into this idea that like, we can't tolerate any infections. We can't tolerate any deaths. Uh, we have to have a vaccine. We have to have a cure before we can go back to life as normal. And that's, that's an argument that I think Republicans can, can make and can contrast as long as Joe Biden uh, continues to say what he's saying. We'll hear from our panel after this. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Amy, it's, it was bend the curve, prevent the hospitalizations from overtaking the hospital system. We bent the curve and a lot of states are seeing the curve go way down. Now, cases are up, but hospitalizations are down. Is that something that can be turned around as a political item. Right. I think the real challenge, and look, this is human nature too, which political leaders have a very difficult time in changing human behavior. But like, for example, no one's telling anybody that they can't go get on a plane right now and fly anywhere they want in the, in the country. But people aren't getting on planes for a reason. One, they're scared to. Two, there's nothing for them to fly to, in part because... <laughs> Um, so much has been shut down, including business travel, right? I mean, if my office is closed and people I want to go visit, their offices are closed. There's not really any reason for me to, to do this. But I do think the big takeaway in all of this is we just don't know the answer, right? If you're paying attention and you're trying to read as much as you can about coronavirus, you're hearing all kinds of data points, right? You're hearing, oh, okay, well, my state, it looks like the curve is bent down, okay, I feel a lot better about that. Then you read about another state where cases suddenly are spiking. The kids are going back to colleges. They're having parties. COVID breaks out there. Oh, they're not going to be hospitalized, but we don't know. Do they have longer term damage? Is this doing real serious damage to, say, their hearts, right? That my kid may never fully recover, but my kid, whether they're 12 or 17 or 22 from getting an infection. So the fact that this is still this unknown, you know, it's this thing that's sort of stalking us makes it harder for people to feel confident about doing the things that they want to do. This is why, I mean, when you look, if you ask voters the question, do you think we can get the economy back without defeating the virus or getting the virus under control? They'll say no. Now what that means 
is different to everybody. There are some people who have a much higher risk tolerance. There are people of much lower risk tolerance. But if you're in charge of a school or if you're in charge of the livelihoods of lots and lots of people, you cannot risk putting that, putting their health and life at risk, right? Because we don't 100% know just who, uh, not only who, could get sick and die, but who could get sick and have per- be permanently damaged afterward? Yeah, no, hundred percent. We just it sucks, but we don't know about <laughs> COVID nineteen and all the things about it. I mean, it really does. It's so frustrating. It is. It's it is. like I don't care what your ideology is. It's just frustrating. We should yep. know. You know, Kim Strassel, um, Chris wrote this piece about H one N and Ebola, and it came up numerous times in the DNC. Said that. The Obama administration handled it. She says, before COVID-19, Democrats were willing to admit they dodged a bullet with H1N1. Former Biden chief of staff Ron Klain said at Texas A&M in 2019, quote, we did every possible thing wrong. 60 million Americans got H1N1 in that period of time. 60 million. And it's just purely of fortunate that this isn't one of the great mass casualty events in American history. It had nothing to do with us doing anything right. It just had to do with luck. If anyone thinks that can't happen again, they don't, they don't have to go back to 1918. Just go back to 2009, 2010. Imagine a virus with a different lethality, and you can just do the math. I mean, that's Ron Klain. And he essentially said, we screwed the whole thing up. H1N1 as like this, they handled it great. It's just, I, I feel like it, nobody kind of remembers any of that, Chris. Well, I certainly remember the way that Republicans handled Obama's handling of Ebola and they were on him. And I believe Trump, uh, private citizen, Donald Trump was, they're going to, Ebola is going to spread in the United States. You're bringing Ebola victims into the United States. What are they doing in Nebraska? Why don't you leave them in Africa? This is insane. It was a thing. It was an uproar. And in the end, the Obama administration handled it. Um, But listen, coronavirus, there are 5 million reported cases. There's 170,000 deaths. For H1N1, there are 60 million, six zero million cases. If it had any lethality like coronavirus, we would have been, it would have been the biggest death scenario ever. Well, you, if, you, if you have the choice as president to be good or lucky, take lucky. Yeah. Always take lucky. You know, uh, whether or not, whatever you think of Bill Clinton, for example, uh, he was the beneficiary of more good luck than any American president in modern history. So he left office with a high approval rating. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, after three very lucky years, he has been on the schneid. It has been brutal. And uh, whether or not he can remain in office will depend on him convincing Americans that he's got a way back to the sunny side of the street and that he can get us out of this morass that we're in. And that is, as George H.W. Bush would say, the vision thing. Yeah, my, my point is, is that you can't, most times a government can't control a virus, Tom. And while they could screw things up, and there were definitely things that were screwed up about whether they admitted that it was a big problem or not, you know, the virus has, has the vote here. And the difference between what's being prescribed or what's being done now and what the Biden administration would do right. is very minuscule as far as what is actually happening now. Not what happened then. What's happening now? 
No, that's right. And, and look, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is part of the problem for Trump. I mean, even Biden says, look, I don't blame him for the virus, but I blame the way he's handled it. And Trump has made that admission not too long ago in that, in that Axios interview where it was kind of like, look, it is what it is. And, and he was ridiculed for that. But that is to your point. And I, it, the question is whether, whether you know, voters have lost confidence in, in him if he, you know, to get us out of this crisis. Um, and if they believe, to your point, that Joe Biden could do anything, I mean, a lot of the things that Joe Biden is suggesting are things that Trump is doing or has done. You know, we're going to find a vaccine. I mean, you know, these are not distinctions with any difference. Um, so it's not really going to come down to that. It's going to come down to, look, for better or worse, when you're the incumbent, you, you know, you reap the rewards when things are good and you take the blame when things are bad. And whether you think Donald Trump's, you know, uh, his, his performance in office had anything to do with this, you know, it's, it's, it's on him. And, you know, he's got to carry that through and, and see whether voters, you know, are going to give him another four years or not. All right, oh, last word, Amy. Okay. Though, let's be really clear. There are other states that had really big problems. I'll take Take Michigan, for example, a state that, especially early on, had a very high number of infections. The economy, again, shut down. Governor shut that down. They've not had, this has not been the most smoothly uh, executed process. But Gretchen Whitmer, every day, held press conferences that were at least perceived to be on topic focused. They were not about her. They did not go into all kinds of other issues as the president's did. And her approval rating right now is 10 to 15 points higher than Donald Trump's. They started off in January with the same approval rating in that state. So it's not that you have to be perfect as an incumbent, but you have to look as if you are competent and you have to be trusted to handle things when they do go wrong. And that was part of the problem was the dismissiveness, as Tom pointed out, or somebody pointed out from the very beginning, but then using those press conferences as ways to really spar with the media, to spar with the people on the stage with him and experts and to float all kinds of theories about medicines or cures that were never considered uh, realistic. That's what has caused his approval ratings on this issue to drop as solidly, not simply that. No, I know what you're saying. There are that many deaths. Governor Cuomo had a press conference every day too, but you look at the number of deaths in New York. That's right. Look at the number of deaths in New York compared to Florida, which got all kinds of heat. DeSantis got all kinds of heat. Yes, there's more cases, but as far as deaths, it's exponentially more in New York and New Jersey. If you took those two states out, we would have a really, really low mortality rate across the country. Well, so that, and that's, why does he why does he get a pass and he's writing a book? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Can I just I mean, that's that's the media piece of this. Right. And the media has been, you know, against Donald Trump, I think, for a long time. And, you know, remember Georgia. Right. Human sacrifice. We were we were experiencing human sacrifice in Georgia by reopening, pushing to reopen and the treatment, the fact that Andrew Cuomo uh, you know, sparring with the media, going on TV with his brother and, you know, clowning around about stuff and, and you know, being talked about how, what a great job he's doing and how proud he is. I mean, it's just, look, it, 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 it approached parody at times. So I think the media, uh, the media's portrayal of some of these different situations has, has a lot to do with how the public perceives or has come to perceive the crisis. But all three of you agree that COVID will be the determining factor in this election? For sure. 
Yeah, I do. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would say determining. I mean, look, it's COVID, it's the economy, and healthcare, and all three of those are intertwined and overlap. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Uh, interesting little podcast. Here's a bit of campaign trivia. August 30th, 2012, esteemed actor and director Clint Eastwood gave a speech at the Republican National Convention in Tampa, and Eastwood had already endorsed uh, the nominee, Mitt Romney. At the convention, he would go on to give a largely improvised speech in which he addressed an empty chair representing the Democratic incumbent, President Barack Obama. Uh, got mixed reviews, some oohs and ahs in the crowd, however, got a lot of attention. It was viewed live by 30 million people across multiple television networks. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Amy and Tom and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.